All right, good evening. I heard you all clearing your throats, so I thought I'd join you. But I turned my mic off so you wouldn't have to hear me. <laughs> good to see you all. Would you all turn to Revelation, Revelation chapter 15. When is the uh, youth retreat? Next weekend? This coming weekend. Somebody needs to tell the pastor what's going on in the church. All right. Okay. I'm just trying to... Oh, here's a bulletin. Let me see. Okay. Well, see, what threw me off was that I saw a youth summer retreat. That's in June. We're not in June yet, are we? Okay. All right. Pardon me. I'm just trying to catch up with things. Uh, those of you that uh, helped with uh, the family that we're helping out in, in, in Fabens, uh, just want to thank you all really just from the depths of my heart because uh, as always you all shine bright when there's a need and uh, you've helped us to fulfill that, uh, that burden in a lot of ways. Uh, there's still some things that we need to do, but uh, you know, I just want to thank uh, everyone that's... Uh, uh, that's been helping and, and have con- has contributed with the things that were necessary, the things that we had on that list. I think, for the most part, everything has been covered, I think, but I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, I noticed that a lot of things did come in, so we're thankful for that. And we'll give you an update this coming weekend. I think this weekend there will be some m- movement toward the Daniel? Okay. So we'll let you know how things are going with that family. And uh, so... Revelation 15. Beginning with verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And that's all we're going to read for tonight. No, we'll read more. This 15th chapter of the book of Revelation is by far the shortest chapter of the book. And it serves as the introduction, as we've already kind of stated uh, in the previous study, but it serves as the introduction to the pouring forth of the judgments of the great bowls of wrath. You'll notice that these angels in this picture have bowls. We call them the vile judgments or the bowl judgments. And these are the seven last plagues to come upon the earth at the end or toward the end of the Great Tribulation period. Now by itself, this chapter gives us another look at the wondrous beauty of the heavenly throne. At times, you know, we've been in and out of heaven with John, the visions that he sees. But uh, we'll, we'll see how these angels from heaven, and then of course you'll notice something else here, and 
I'm not trying to base this picture as, as the thing to be looking at, but, you know, we talk about a sea of glass, and, and here it was mingled, uh, it says, with uh, the color of fire. And so we'll talk about that in just a moment. But in this chapter, we return to the basic chronological order of events as presented in the seven seals of chapter 6. Now, I did mention, and I have mentioned along the way, that at times we're not really staying strict to chronology. We're not staying strict to, you know, one event after another. Sometimes we have to take a few steps back to look at what's happening or what has already been mentioned. For example, we had at the very beginning of, of, the, of the judgments, we were given the seal judgments. The breaking of each seal brought about a new judgment. And that was primarily things that we were seeing happen at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, or what will be the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. Then, of course, after the seventh seal is broken, then the trumpet judgments were introduced by that seventh seal being broken. Uh, so the seventh seal includes all of the seven judge, trumpet judgments of chapters 8 through 9, verse 21, and chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. So you see how it's kind of broken up a little bit in sections. Uh, the other thing that that needs to be understood here as well is that uh, there is that going back a little bit. So you you see how the the seventh seal opens up uh, the, these particular judgments uh, that include not only the first part of the tribulation but also the second. But then when the seventh trumpet contain, uh, is blown, it is containing all of the seven bowls of divine judgment. So the seventh breaks into the new set, and now we're into that new set, or at least we're getting ready to get into the uh, seven bowls of judgment. Now, immediately after the seventh bowl judgment, that is when the second coming of Christ will follow. And I mentioned last week that there is a distinction between the rapture of the church, which we believe is going to take place at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, or that ushers in the seven-year tribulation period, and the second coming, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ, with ten thousands of his saints, as the scriptures tell us. And then he comes to set his feet upon the Mount of Olives, enter in through the eastern gate, and then establish himself as the, as, as, as the ruler of not only Jerusalem and the seat of David in Jerusalem, and on the Temple Mount, and where uh, Mount Zion would be uh, considered to be, and, and all of that, but also the one who rules and reigns over the whole earth for a thousand years. So, that's the second coming of Christ. Now, from chapters 11 through 14, which we have already covered, we have dealt with parenthetical events, things that we add into this seven-year period of time. And so this chapter here begins with the Apostle John seeing another sign in heaven. And this being the third of three signs, the other two found in chapter 12. So turn to chapter 12. Of course, keep your finger here in chapter 15. But I want you to see how these are the three times that we see a sign mentioned. It begins here in... Verse 1, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, do not confuse this with the vision and the dream that was given to Joseph, which is what we studied back uh, on Sunday. Uh, this is not it. The, 
the, the whole purpose of this particular vision is to show the woman to be Israel. Now, we have already studied this. So we, we know that the woman is Israel. And I'll bring up a slide so you'll kind of be reinforced in that thought. Uh, and then in verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. The second mention of a sign in the book of Revelation in verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. I think that's pretty self-explanatory as to who that is. And we'll also give you another slide to, uh, to reinforce that thought. So, the woman mentioned the, the three signs, by the way. The three signs together represent important prophetic elements. And the first being that the woman is meant, the woman that is mentioned in verse 1 is Israel. Uh, we made that pretty clear in our study of that uh, particular verse. And then secondly, the great red dragon signifies the control of Satan and the beast over the final world empire. Now we haven't dealt completely with who this final world empire is, but we've given you a lot of hints and we've talked a lot about it on the way. Uh, but we have focused our attention on the very fact that Satan is the one who is trying to control through the beast or Antichrist as well as the false prophet. Those characters we've already met and mentioned. But then thirdly, the seven last plagues of our text here in Revelation 15 represent God's judgment upon the satanic and political power of the Antichrist. The three signs. If you were to do a, uh, a search uh, through the scriptures uh, with a concordance, you'll find out that there, these are the three times that the word sign is, is applied in the book of Revelation. So these are the three. A sign, another sign, and another sign. Very important elements to our understanding of these last days and last things. Revelation 15, verse 1. So let's look at this verse. I know that we looked at it a little bit last week. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Now, we, while we talked about the word complete last time in detail as meaning to mark an end of or bring to a determined goal. That is what the word teleo means, which is the word that we use for complete here, or that is used there. I I stated that the trumpet judgments were just a warm-up for what is about to come forth. And just to add to that, that the word of, uh, or I'm sorry, the wrath of God is a plan that is being carried out to its completion. The wrath of God is a plan that is being carried out to its completion. So there is no stopping what God has already predetermined is going to happen. This is going to happen because God has seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. The sign in heaven is described as great and marvelous. And, and that phrase appearing only here and in verse 3. Describing the awesome works of God. In fact, all of God's doings are great, aren't they? 
All of God's doings are great. But it's interesting that the sign here is described as great and marvelous. And as well in verse 3. Turn, if you will, I'm just going to give you a few scriptures here to strengthen the understanding. I mean, we already know how great God is. But notice what it says in verse 5. I'm sorry, in Job 5, verse 8. And this is not Job speaking. It is one of his friends, Eliphaz, who's speaking. But nonetheless, there's, there's truth in this statement. And so we take this statement that is mentioned to us in Job 5, verse 8. It says, but as for me, I would seek God. And to God I would commit my cause. Now if you just think about those words for just a moment, think about that in your own life. Do we seek after God? And do we commit our whole cause to Him? I suppose we better know what our cause is. What is the cause of Christ? That is our cause. What is the mission that God has given to us? What is the commission? That he has given to us. What has he told us that we are to do? What has he told us as to how we are to live? What has he told us as to how we are to reflect the love of Christ and the person of Jesus Christ? So it's an interesting verse here. But it says, but as for me, I would seek God and to God I would commit my cause. Who does great things? Yes, he does, doesn't he? Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. That's how great our God is. We can't even count the things that God has done for us. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. You know, that is a tremendous encouragement, I think, for all of us. How God lifts us when we're low. How He, how he saves us in our times of fear. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. I, I, I know that we're not studying Genesis and we're not studying the person of, of Joseph as we did on Sunday, but, you know, I'm really concerned. Uh, to me, as, as we, we took that time to study Joseph's life, here was a man who walked with God and God walked with him. Here was a man who was in God and God was in him. And I mentioned so often how, you know, we have to let God deal with the consequences of all that we do. Especially if we're doing things for the Lord. Not to say, Lord, why? Why did this bad thing happen to me? Because Joseph never complained. And God allowed us to see the heart of Joseph as one, though he had certainly a sense of the affliction and a, and, and a certainty of, of the sense of the pain that he went through. Yet in the end, he told his brothers, what you did, you meant for evil, but what God, but, but God meant all of this for good. And, and that's the, the, the lesson I wanted to teach. And I think that just in this particular statement alone, as I, as I, as I think of some of the prayer requests, sometimes we hear that people have, you know, and they say, I just, I, you know, I'm just so frustrated because of the things that are happening to me. But you, but you need to turn back to God and give him the consequences. Let him deal with those things in this life. You know, we're not done living life yet. I know the Lord's coming, but you know what? We're not done living the way God wants us to. We're not done learning about how we are to live. How we are to project the love of Christ. How we are to project the goodness of the Lord. 
Do we all not suffer loss? Do we all not suffer pain? Do we all not suffer affliction? But don't we do it together knowing that God is the one who has allowed this for good? God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That's enough for us to realize that He works all things good. He works all things together for good, I should say. So He frustrates the devices of the craft. I didn't want to sermonize, but I just felt like I needed to share that. Job 9, verse 10, it says he does great things. Past fighting out, yes, wonders without number. By the way, this is Job speaking now. Job's struggling, you know, with the things that his friends have taught him and told him and all this kind of stuff in the midst of his own uh, loss and, and whatnot. I think of Psalm 40, verse 5, it says, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. That's twice that we've seen that the things of God, the great things of God cannot be numbered. Besides, who would want to number them anyway? <laughs> Just keep them coming, Lord. Why number them? Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David says, hey, I'm wonderfully made. Doesn't make you great, makes God great. <laughs> Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. So we realize great and marvelous are the things that God does, even in, and this is the point, even in judgment. That's what we have to get across here. That what God does always is great and marvelous, even in judgment. Because He is righteous, He is just, He is true. These are His attributes. Yes, He's merciful. Yes, He's gracious. Yes, He's love. But He's holy, holy, holy. And He's righteous. And He's just. And He's true. And so the seven last plagues are the final judgments preceding the second coming of Christ, the pouring out of affliction upon a wicked world. It should make us remember the condition of our own country in these last days and how we as a nation have succumbed to the evil influences that plague our society and culture daily. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. We always have to come back to this particular verse because it is not only a statement theologically that Paul is establishing about the issue of sin in our day and time, but he is certainly sounding tremendously prophetic. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now we would say, when is he going to do that? You see, there's a, there, there's a, a certain time frame that's going on that we don't understand fully because as believers in Jesus Christ sometimes we say Lord why do you let the wicked do what they do as much as they do and why do they prosper isn't this a question in the scriptures that has been asked of the Lord why do the wicked prosper don't worry their day is coming and I don't and I don't say that arrogantly. I, I mean I just I just say that because that is the truth. 
You know, the same thing we can say about the judgment that's going to come to Satan and to the Antichrist and to the false prophet in this book that we're studying. And sometimes we already know what's going to happen to them. We've already seen a mention of it. So we say, it's going to be done because it's in God's Word. And we see things happening as the Lord is, is, is completing this, this uh, work that He has established to be completed and perfected in the consummation of the ages. When we see that happening, what Paul is saying is prophetic. The wrath of God will be revealed. It is revealed, it says. The is revealed is saying, this is a done deal, folks. But it hasn't happened yet. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, have we now as a, as a nation come to the point where these words from this chapter of Romans applies to us? Well, I want you to consider something. We're not going to read this whole passage here. I would like for you to read it again. I would like for you to take this home and read it again. But let's just jump down to verse 24. Because there's a little phrase that I've underlined that is of of great value to our understanding that we need to be praying for this nation each and every day of our lives until the Lord comes. Because it says in Romans 1.24, you know, after it says, you know, that, uh, you know, man decided just to kind of, you know, pretend to be wise or uh, being wise, you know, know, the Lord is, uh, is, is really going to come down on him, you know. So he says, therefore God also gave them up. Notice the phrase, God also gave them up. He gave them up. To what? To uncleanness. In the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. It goes on and talks about men the same way. In verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. Now notice, He gave them up, He gave them up, and He gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And today we live in a society that is forcing us to accept things that we have been taught in the Word of God are not only vile sins, but but abominations to the Lord. So, has the Lord already given us up as a nation? Not completely and not yet. And that's the good news. That's the good news. There's still a lot of good that's going on. There's still a lot of good going on because Christians are not backing down from standing on the truth of the Word of God. And that's what we need to do. But Christians are the first ones. Whenever there's some kind of a tragedy, whenever there's some kind of a national emergency, Christians really are the ones that respond first. I know they will see the Red Cross and all of these things, but you cannot believe how many churches immediately mobilize to go where the problems are. It was amazing back on September the 11th, 2001, we call it 9-11. As soon as churches and ministries were allowed to go, they went in the thousands. Katrina and all the others. 
And even in, 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 in parts of the, of the world where Christians are not welcome on a day-to-day basis, they welcome them then. Where the typhoons had hit, where, where the uh, tidal waves took place. It's always that. We take a stand for the love of Christ, for the cross of Jesus Christ, in whatever, whatever way we can do it. Many of us participated in 9-11 from here. Many of us. I'm so thankful for those of you that went when we went. That was a long time ago, my goodness. We can't stop doing that. But we don't just accept things for what people tell you that we have to. No, we have to stand on the truth of the Word of God. There's a lot of good that's going on in this world. Good things. I hope and pray that it's motivated by, by the love of Christ. So, no, it hasn't completely happened, but, but we're headed that way still as a nation. We're still headed that way. And so... We need to remember Proverbs 14.34. We need to remember that righteousness exalts a nation. Oh, that our leaders in this country would read this. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And folks, the problem with this verse to many people in our government today is that they have changed the definition of sin. They've changed the definition of sin. And now they take that on their own terms, not on God's terms. That's the dangerous part. We cannot take, we, we cannot take God or go to God with our own terms. We have to come to the standard that God has established in His Word. That's the standard. He has told us from the beginning what sin is. And then he has pinpointed a lot of very specific sins. And these don't change. Because God doesn't change. And God's word doesn't change. So yes, righteousness exalts a nation. To do what is right. Because it's the right thing to do. Because God has given us that standard. But sin is a reproach to any people. And it will become the reproach of this people. The same people that this whole nation was founded upon the, the, the principles of, of uh, the Judeo-Christian theology and ethic. Today, that's been pulled out from under the people's uh, lives in this country. Took prayer out of school. We don't want the Word of God in school. We don't, you know, we... we we don't want uh, chaplains praying in the name of Jesus. We don't, we, we don't even want them to proselytize. You know that uh, we're called to go out and tell people about Jesus and make disciples. That's, how do we do that when we're told by the government not to, and yet the second, or I should say the First Amendment of the Constitution tells us we can. You see how, how messed up things are. I didn't want to talk about politics. Why did I start? Getting back to our text of Revelation. This judgment is to be the final expression of God's anger and and divine righteousness. But look at verse 2 now of our text. 
It says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and, and those who had the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Now, John is describing the scene in heaven. So again, we talked earlier about the, the glorious scene in heaven. It, we come and go from it, but, but John gives us this particular scene. And, and it says something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And this phrase alludes to Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, which I'll bring to your remembrance here. It says, before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now, this particular sea, as we see here in Revelation 4, signifies the reflection of the glory of God. Uh, being described like crystal testifies to the holiness of God. And the sea mingled with fire, in our text, chapter 15, represents divine judgment coming forth from God's holiness. We can we understand that. We have to understand that. God is holy, I just mentioned. God is holy, righteous, just, true. But He is above all holy. And so, heaven reflects His, reflects his holiness in the crystal. But now the, 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 the mingled with fire color, as it were, is again representative of judgment. And as far as the saints being able to stand on the sea indicates the faithfulness of God to uphold His own, which reminds me of the words of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. And it says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you know... That the right arm and the right hand of the Lord in the Old Testament is really a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or it is speaking of, I should say, it is speaking of Jesus Christ. So, that is who upholds us. We are upheld by the righteous right hand of God, who is indeed our Savior. But now the question is, who, is, who exactly is standing on the sea of glass? Now, I know that when we were studying earlier uh, about the 144,000, when they stood up and they were protected during their time of going forth and preaching the gospel, they were well protected and they were not destroyed. But we need to understand that this is, this is different. We, we, we ask who is standing on this sea of glass. We can fairly, or we can say fairly confidently that these will be the martyred dead of Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13. Those, in other words, who were killed or will be killed by the beast for their faith in Jesus Christ during the time of the tribulation period. Now, these will remain faithful unto death without yielding to the demands of Antichrist. That is one of the things that we need to understand about those who perish during the time of the tribulation. They're standing on the sea of glass, but standing is a symbol Standing is, is a sign, as it were. Their standing implies victory and conquest through resurrection. In other words, if the enemy wanted to destroy the believers during that time, he may have killed their bodies, but not their souls. He didn't destroy them completely, of course, because God has saved their souls and their spirits. 
And in fact, as we know from the Scriptures, they will receive new bodies. And they will resurrect into these new bodies that God has in store for all who will enter into His kingdom in heaven. So it is considered that the harps now that are mentioned, uh, they, have, uh, they have these harps that are used in, in the worship of Almighty God, uh, are their reward for refusing to worship the beast. A heavenly instrument as opposed to whatever uh, kind of worship uh, the beast wants uh, when, when he's able to say, now you must worship me. Which is kind of interesting because I saw, uh, I think it was on uh, uh, the news on, on the internet or something, that, that uh, uh, churches, uh, uh, this is really not only dumb, but it's, uh, it's, it's uh, an oxymoron. Atheist churches. You know, there are atheist churches now. And uh, they have these atheist churches where they, atheists get together and they just meet. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, some, say, some people say, well, they've gone to it and all they talk about is evolution and they talk about humanism and they talk about, you know, human potential and all this kind of stuff. But, but, they're, but they're meeting in mockery of, of God and of people that meet on a Sunday morning in worship of God. And, and so what are they worshiping? Well, they worship uh, 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 God in three persons, don't they? Me, myself, and I. Uh, they're worshiping themselves because they don't have a God. They don't believe in God. Yet, if you read Romans 1 tonight, you realize they know there's a God. But they stand up against that thought anyway. So, here, here it is, you know. I mean, people, you know, when, the, when the beast comes on the scene, I mean, they're, see, they're going to not only worship him, they're going to be forced to worship in their way. And if harps are the, the, harp, if harps are the instruments of God for us in heaven as rewards of our only worshiping the Lord and not the Antichrist, you know, what, what instrument then is, uh, you know, the, the world using for their worship? It's, it's just the self, you know. It's, it's who they are. They think they're gods. They become gods to themselves. Now, Pastor James would have told you they were probably the accordion that they play. Because that's, you know, there's harps and then there's the accordion. But he, he doesn't like the accordion. Anyway, uh, He's not here to tell me anything. So. <laughs> There's another view of the sea of glass as being the word of God. And those who stand on it are victorious over the enemy because of God's word. Now you all remember what the labor is. The labor of the tabernacle and the labor of the temple. The labor comes, you know, the, the word that's used, of course, comes from that, that ancient word for to wash. Lavar. Labor. Okay, so... The laver, the big, large place that has water in it, uh, was used for the priests uh, so that they would wash themselves before entering into the, into the tabernacle or into the temple. Well, that's also known as the sea of brass. The sea of brass. And it represents that while we are on the earth, we are to let the word of God wash away the garbage that has been attached to us through living in this world. I think we remember one time about, you know, the Lord uh, uh, washing the feet of the apostles. And, and Peter said, no, you're going to you know, wash me totally. And he said, no, I don't have to wash you totally. Just your feet, your feet are touching. You know, every day, you know, there's that day that we just, a daily cleansing that we want to have. But it's the washing of the water of the word as, as told to us in the book of Ephesians that we need to be concerned about. We've been washed by the water of the word of God. And just daily, we just seek the Lord just to be cleansed and be purified each and every day. That's, that's what our daily prayers need to be. But, 
But we're to let the Word of God wash away the garbage that has been attached to us through living on this world. And so now, now these will be in heaven. We're talking about these saints that have been mentioned. Standing on the Word of God, no longer needing to cleanse themselves. And as they are before the throne of God, they will be accepted by God. I want you to remember a reading of their faith and their victory in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. So let's go back there for just a moment. Revelation 12, verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And by the way, it's not just accusing those brethren. It's accusing us brethren too. (laughs) He's doing that right now. Uh, He's been cast down and they overcame him by, notice, the blood of the Lamb. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. In other words, they, they, the statement is that you know, they, they gave themselves fully and totally to the cause of Christ and His word. You know, the, the, the Lord is, is very clear a few times in the Gospels. You know, if we seek to gain our life, we will lose it. But if we lose our lives for the sake of Christ and His kingdom, we gain eternal life. Now let's consider the, the, the song that we find in verses 3 and 4 of our text. And this is going to be the focus of the rest of the time that we have tonight. Next week we'll complete, complete this chapter. Alright, so verses 3 and 4. They sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. All right, so I'm going to mention this later, but I'm just going to kind of throw it out there now. There's two songs mentioned, but they're one song, okay? Two songs mentioned, there's one song. It's one song with two titles, Song of Moses and the, servant, uh, and, and the Song of the Lamb. But there's, you know, it's kind of like a song with a lot of verses in it, Okay? So they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, what do they say? Great and marvelous are your works. Now, I want you to notice the words that are underlined. Your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. The direction of all of this song is not about them. It's not about the ones singing the song. It's about God. And it's praising God. And it's worshiping God. And it's exalting the Lord. It's giving Him all the glory. It's giving Him all the honor. That's worship. And that's praise. As mentioned, two songs are in view here. Song of Moses, sung at the Red Sea. Reminiscent of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, which is back in Exodus 15. But it also mentions the song of the Lamb, which is to be sung at the Crystal Sea and speaks of redemption from sin made possible by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God 
and includes all the saints. One song details triumph over Egypt. The other song, triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses tells of how God brought people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brings people in. The song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last song. Isn't that great? All right. That's great. We go home now. No, not yet. Got a few more minutes. Specifically, the content of the Song of Moses praises... I'll go slow if you're taking notes. The Song of Moses praises God's power. It praises God's plan. It praises God's perfection. And it praises God's purpose. God's power... God's plan, God's perfection, and God's purpose. That's the song of Moses. Now, the song of the Lamb praises, are you ready? God's works. God's ways. God's worthiness. And worship. In effect, it is the same song. In context to the chapter that we're studying, consider that the song of Moses is a song those dear saints could sing as they come out of the tribulation period. Think about that. Turn to Exodus chapter 15 verses 1 and 2. Now we're only going to read the first two verses. But just think about that thought. I'm going to give you that thought again. The song of Moses, just consider that that song of Moses, this song here, is a song that the the saints of the tribulation period will come out of the tribulation singing. Think about that. Okay, here it goes. Ready? Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. Will God not triumph gloriously at the end of the tribulation period? The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. Where is He going to throw the devil and and the beast and and, and, and the false prophet? The lake of fire. Wow, kind of interesting. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him, my Father's God. And I will exalt him. There's another song of Moses, by the way. There's another song of Moses that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, where we see that God is faithful and he will bring us out of bondage and avenge the blood of his servants. So let's kind of add this to the song of Moses as well. Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. What was the cry of the saints that were under the altar in heaven? Lord, when will you avenge us? Lord says, I got it all. At the right time, the right moment, you will be avenged. So again, the fact is they're only singing one song. Which goes by two titles. Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. 
What we have then is the perfect union between law and love. The perfect union between law and love. The perfect union between the old covenant and the new covenant. And these martyrs are only focused on God. These martyrs are only focused on the Lord God. They're not focused on their own costly victory. Theirs is a true heart of worship. Understanding that it's all about God and not about us. Seven times in these two verses are the pronouns you or your. Seven times. From this song, from this song, we can learn something. From this song, we can learn to praise the works of God. We're praising the power of God and we're praising the works of God. From this song, we can learn to praise the works of God. We're told in Psalm 145, verses 10 through 13, all your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. All your works. Now if we combine this with our study of Joseph's life from this past Sunday, all his works, all of God's works, what work was he working for Joseph? If Joseph was hated by his brothers, so was Jesus. If he was exalted by his father, well, so was Jesus. But then his brethren wanted to kill him, well, so they wanted to kill Jesus. They left him for dead, as they did Jesus. He was tempted, as was Jesus. Because of a crime that he did not commit, Joseph spent a a long time in prison. In that, we can just say that though it was a short time, or a lot shorter time, the innocent Lamb of God was falsely accused and put into a tomb after his death. But then Joseph was released, and because of God's goodness and mercy, no matter how many years he spent going through the problems and the consequences and the pains and the hurts of all of those other things, he rose to be a prince in Egypt. And Jesus rose to be the Prince of Peace, which he always was and always will be. All your works. And I remind you again, Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
So all your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And so the song in, in, in Revelation 15 teaches us to praise the works of God, but it also teaches us to praise the ways of God or the plans of God. To praise the ways of God. Still in Psalm 145, verse 17, it says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways, gracious in all His works. The Lord is righteous in all His ways. Righteous in all His ways. There's not one work or one way of God that isn't righteous. Everything is right. The song also teaches us to praise the worthiness or the perfection of God. I'm telling you these things because I don't want you to have to think that you have to wait you know, to the end of the tribulation period. I certainly don't want any of you to go through that because the Bible tells you you're not supposed to. But here's the thing. We don't wait to praise God for these things. We need to do them now. Praise God for His worthiness and perfection. Psalm 96, verses 8 and 9. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and and come into His courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness, or the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Because He alone is holy. No one can be holy like Him. And yet, doesn't it tell us in the Scriptures, in the book of Leviticus as well, as in, in, in the writings of Peter, the Apostle? First Peter chapter 1, actually. He says, as the Word of, as, as the word of God says... Be ye holy, for I am holy. So that is what we are to do. Not only praise Him for His holiness and His worthiness and perfection, but we that need to be holy. We need to set ourselves apart unto the cause of Christ. And then lastly, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb teach us to praise the purpose of God. It teaches us to praise the purpose of God. And notice what we will look at as our example as we close tonight. Revelation 4, verses 10 and 11. What do they do? They worship the Lord. They give Him all His due. What He is due. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, cast their crowns. And we've all read, you know, about the crowns that, that uh, we receive for our faithfulness to Christ in this life. There's all kinds of crowns scriptures talk about. 
But if the 24 elders who represent the faithful in, 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 in the Old and New Testaments, representing all the faithful, they're casting their crowns before the feet of the Lord. Because all the worthiness is His. And so, they say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We think here at this point that he is uh, the creator. We worship him because he has created all things with a purpose, with a purpose and a plan. And, And when he created everything, as we saw in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. What did it say about all the things that he created? Every day it said the same thing. At the end of that day it said that it was good. What God created was good. He called it good. And then came evening and morning the next day. And he called it good. Because when God creates, His purpose is to create for good. And all the glory for that goes to Him. All the glory. Not some of it. And we keep some of it. All of it. All of it goes to Him. So, as we look to the next portion of this particular chapter. I wanted to take a little bit of time for that because it is that final step into, as we see the all the bold judgments in the next chapter mentioned. So the prelude is still going on here, but we're, we're going to you know, complete this vision of heaven and what we're being told about. And there is still that, there, there is still that understanding here of, of, of the holiness that's in the, in the, in the heaven, uh, or in the heavens, and, and as well, the preparation for the judgment. So we won't take anything lightly here. We're going to take it all step by step. And then we get right into the seven judgments of chapter 16, the bold judgments. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and close our service. Father, we thank you so much for giving us once again the opportunity to look at your word. To study it verse by verse, word for word, and to look at the importance of it, even though we...